I mentioned last week that I wanted to start a sermon series on the commandments of Jesus. If he told us in the Sermon on the Mount, or or, uh, actually the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, what? Whatsoever I have commanded you. So can you tell me what Jesus commanded us? Can you tell me? Well, then how can we obey that command if we don't even know what he commanded us to do? So we're at an impasse. And uh, it just seems someone suggested, have you ever done a sermon series on what Jesus commanded us to do? I know he told us what's the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that all he commanded us to do? No. There are many other commands through the Gospels that Jesus commanded us to do, and not just to one specific person, not just in one specific time and date, but in general for all people for all time. What are those commands? And I hope as we look at this series in the coming weeks that you'll become more familiar with them, and more importantly, that you'll obey them. Because he says, we are to teach all things, Whatsoever I have commanded you. So I don't know a better way to take it than just start at the beginning and go through it in sequential order, primarily using the Gospel of of Matthew as our backbone, as our background, uh, and then venturing into other Gospels as in sequential order as they occur. But the very first thing Jesus says and does coming up out of the baptismal waters of the Jordan River and going into the temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, he comes out, and this is what he says. Verse 12 of Matthew 4. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali toward the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the very first thing Jesus commanded us to do. And we have glossed over it and taken it so lightly. But this morning, I want us to look at this first command of Jesus, what it means to repent, how you repent, what are the reasons why we don't want to repent, and then the rewards of when we do. We're going to take a look at it. Let's bow together. Father, unfold your truth to us this day. And let our words and our meditations and our thoughts and our hearts be turned entirely to you, removing all distractions and all baggage, breaking down the barriers we have erected around our hearts that would impede fellowship with the one true God. In your name we pray, amen. Just a word about the commands of Jesus As I said, he told us to make disciples by teaching them to observe, observe, implement, follow, practice, demonstrate 
all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So if I were to ask you, what did Jesus command us to do, could you, could you tell me? How many commands of Jesus could you recite for me? Because we can't obey them if we don't even know what they are. So I hope in the coming weeks to make you more familiar with and make you more aware of these commands that Jesus gave us. Let me start with some caveats, some warnings. First of all, you cannot earn your salvation by following Jesus' commands. You cannot maintain your salvation by doing an abundance of good works. You will not lose your salvation if you don't do these things. But obeying Jesus is our way of demonstrating our love for him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do these things. Like a child who obeys his or her father because they want to please them. Because they know the father's love for them. Let me also point out the fact that God never gave us mere suggestions. When he tells us to do something or not do something, it's not arbitrary, it's not capricious, it is out of his love of a father wanting to protect his children and want the very best for his children. And when we obey that loving father, it's an act of love, it's a reflection of our love for him. So God gives us these commands, Jesus pronounces them for us as an act of love, and when we obey them, it is a response of love, of trust and belief, knowing that when God tells us something, he's trying to spare us from harm. When you disobey God, friends, it is to your own injury and demise. God can see further down the road, and when he tells you not to do something, he knows that if you do it, it's going to end up a disaster. And if, when he tells you to do something, <coughs> excuse me, he knows it is in your best interest, <coughs> excuse me, to do it. <coughs> so don't take these commands as something negative. A lot of people read command and they think, well, this is like a military giving an order. It's like a general telling a private what to do. No. This is not what these commands are. When Jesus gives us a command, he's not trying to control us like a dictator. He is giving us words of life and love and purpose and hope. There's a reason behind it. So erase any negative connotations that the word command has for you and see it instead as words of love and encouragement from a father trying to spare his children harm and injury and provide for their needs. Let me give you an example. And, and I just love the example of, of a father and children. Let's say we are children living in our father's house under his roof. Parents have certain expectations for their children. At least they should. <laughs> Clean your room. Brush your teeth. Take a bath. Do your homework. Come to church. Respect your parents. All these things parents expect of their children living under their roofs. These rules are not to be seen as punishment. Thank you. They are helpful. They are purposed to devote a sense of responsibility. They want to develop character in the life of their child. In fact, even the converse would be true. It would be irresponsible for a parent not to teach their children certain rules, certain principles 
certain ethics and morals. It would be irresponsible for a parent not to teach a child (coughs) the consequences of certain actions, how to handle money, how to prepare a meal, how to respect authority, how to follow God's ways. It would be irresponsible for a parent not to do that. So don't see these commands in a negative light, like in the military, someone giving you an order. See them as a father providing loving instruction for his son and daughter. The relationship makes a difference, and we obey because deep down we know that Jesus loves us and always, always, always has our best interests at heart. So it's not orders, it's instructions to live a life in relationship with God. Let me also say these commands are like a gold standard. These commands are a plumb line that Jesus has given us, and to the extent that we follow them, we'll be in alignment with with what God wants for us and desires for us, which was always the best. Let me give you an example. I remember when the first McDonald's restaurants opened about 50 years ago. It was before I was born, so it'd be hard for me to remember. But anyway, um, I I, I even remember going in and seeing the first plastic straw and getting one for free because I pointed it out. How, how do you attribute the success of McDonald's restaurants? One thing that they do is they have very stringent quality control. A manager, when he opens up a McDonald's restaurant, he gets thick manuals of instructions and policies and things to follow and how to prepare food and certain ingredients. And they have frequent inspections to verify that their restaurants and their managers are following these procedures, these policies and instructions, and I imagine Wendy's does that and Chick-fil-A does that, and any successful franchise has manuals of instructions that they have to follow, and if they do not, they close that franchise down. What if we had that for followers of Jesus Christ? What if churches had quality control? So if you met a Christian from the other side of the world, they would have similar beliefs and actions and attitudes and words because they had been instructed in the same way that you have. Well, the good news is that there is a quality control and it's called the commands of Jesus. The problem is that that not all of us know them and obey them as others do. So these commands are like quality control for Christians. These are the plumb line that we are to line up against and try to follow. And and let me just say, too, I know nobody's perfect. That's no excuse for for not trying, but when we can't follow that perfect perfect plumb line, that perfect command that God has given us, we don't throw in the towel, we don't give up, but we ask for forgiveness and we... Ask God to help us because none of us can do it alone. But when God is with us and he places his spirit within us, that enables us out of love to obey. The first thing, and I know I've got an extensive outline in your worship bulletin. You know, honestly, I just didn't know how to outline this first command of Jesus. 
But I'm just going to go through it, and, and I did come up with an alliteration of a bunch of R's. Requirement, results, reluctance, and reward. What is requirement? Why is repentance? What is repentance? Why is it necessary? You know, when children come in to see me about joining the church and inviting Jesus into their heart, basically they say, I want to join the church and get baptized. Baptized is what they usually say. And I, and I, I want to probe that a little deeper and say, why do you want to do that? What does that mean to you? And I'll ask a question. <clears throat> Following Jesus means believing in him as God's son and, and being Lord and Savior. And then it means repenting of your sins. And I'll ask that child, do you know what the word repent means? Do you know what it means to repent? And invariably, they'll say, no, we haven't done a very good job of teaching repentance in the church. What is repentance? It's Jesus' first command, so we ought to at least be familiar with it, don't you think? Repentance is the English translation of the Greek word metanoia. The word Greek meta means to change, like metamorphosis is a change of body. Metanoia is, noia is mind. So metanoia is change of mind. That's what the word repentance literally means. What are you changing your mind about? You're changing your mind about sin. Sin is anything against the desire, the heart, the will of God for your life. And you're following in this direction and you see this sin and it looks good, it looks fun, it looks like it's going to be enjoyable and so you embrace it and you realize that it's bad for you. And so you repent, you metanoia, you change your mind about that sin and a change of mind results in a change of attitude and that results in a change of behavior. So literally when you change your mind about something, you're changing your behavior and your direction and you're turning away from it. That's what repentance means. It means to change direction 180 degrees away from that sin that you once thought was tantalizing, that you once found enjoyable. And you repent, you metanoia, you change your mind and turn away from it. Why is that necessary? Very simply because God and sin cannot exist together. If you think they can, then you are either grossly underemphasizing the holiness of God or you're underestimating the seriousness of sin. God and sin, it's like light and dark. It's like cold and heat. They cannot be together. God is so holy that he cannot be in audience. He cannot even countenance sin. He turns his head from it. He turns away from it. So they are mutually exclusive. God will not put up with sin. He finds it repugnant. He finds it repulsive. And he pulls away from it. And so repenting is agreeing with God that this sin is, is terrible. It's, it's a bad thing in my life. And I want to turn away from it and follow God. Sin is confessing our sin, is agreeing with God that this is not good, this is not right, and I want to turn away from it, God, and, and follow you. Here's sin going in that direction, here's God going in that direction. You can't go in both directions at the same time. So that's the requirement 
is to repent, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you can't be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as long as you have sin in your life. And so you need to repent of it and change your mind and change your attitude and change your behavior and turn away from it. What are the results of repentance? Well, John the Baptist, just in the previous chapter of Matthew, in chapter 3, verse 8, says this, Bear fruit that befits repentance. Very simply, bear fruit that befits repentance. What does that mean? It means that when you repent, there ought to be some kind of outward sign, manifestation, some fruit that results from your repentance. Jesus, John the Baptist tells us that repentance is more than just being sorry for our sin. It means a change in behavior with God's help. And let me, let me get a little parenthetical remark here too. Because I know I have sinned in my life. And I've tried, I've said I'm sorry. But you know what? I go back and do the same sin again. And the same sin again. And it's just, basically it just gets down to the fact, God, I, I know this is a sin and I don't want it in my life. I don't like it in my life. But I can't fix it by myself. I just can't. Under my own power, with my own strength, I can't make this right. When I'm talking to children, you know, I'll, and I ask them, do you know what repentance means? And they say, no, I try to make it as simple as possible. I say, have you ever, has someone ever done anything to you? And they said, I'm sorry. And then, and you say, I forgive you. And then they, they go around and do the very same thing again and say, I'm sorry. And then they do it again and say, I'm sorry. I say, after several times, what do you begin to think? And they think, well, they must not really mean it. Exactly. Just being sorry, you just do it over and over again. But repentance means being so sorry that you, with God's help, not under your own power, not with your own strength, but with the Holy Spirit, turning away from that sin and actually with God's help asking, God, I don't want to keep making the same mistake over and over again, but I can't fix it. You're going to have to give me the power. And to the extent that we love the Lord, he says, he who has my commandments and does it, he it is who loves me. John 14, 21. So if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, what does that reveal? It must reveal that we don't really love Jesus. Because he says, if you have my commandments, and what? And do them. He it is who loves me. Those are the two ingredients to show God, to show Jesus that we love him. We have his commandments and we actually obey them. We do them. And so the absence of obedience reveals the absence of love. The presence of obedience reveals the presence of love. He who has my commandments and does them, he it is who loves me. So that's the results, bearing fruit that befit repentance. Well, if that's all there is to it, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard to repent? I think about this often, and, and I think the, the thing that keeps us from repentance is that little ugly five-letter word that is at the root of so much of our sin. Do you know what it is? P-R-I-D-E. Pride. That's what makes us reluctant to repent. 
We're prideful. We think we're pretty good people. You know what? I hadn't murdered anybody. And uh, I have a pretty good track record with the other nine commandments, those ten commandments. And, and I'm better than, than most people I see around me. And I know God's not going to send a good guy like me to hell. I know he wants me in heaven. You know what that is? That's pride. That is believing that you are a better person than you really are. Satan makes us think we haven't really done anything bad enough to need repentance. I mean, you know, you know maybe, maybe a little white lie here and there. Maybe fudging on my income tax a few weeks ago. I don't know about you. <clears throat> but you know something that's very unsettling I discovered in James recently? And I've read this many times. But this really drove it home. James says in chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All of it. Just one little white lie? You mean that makes me a sinner? Yes. One sin makes you a sinner. Um, committing one crime makes you a criminal. Breaking one law makes you a lawbreaker. Committing one sin makes you a sinner. So it doesn't matter how good a person you think you are, if you're not perfect, you're a sinner. And it's pride that keeps you from seeing yourself as God sees you. One sin separates you from him. And of course, all of us are much more than just one sin people. We sin, and I enjoy asking children that question too. How often do you think you sin? You know, some child, maybe once a day, more than that, maybe twice a day, no. We can't even keep track of how many sins we commit because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that sin begins in the heart. It's not just the outward manifestation of um, of committing a sin. It's where that sin takes root. It's where it begins in the heart. Jesus says things like, if you lust after a woman, it's committing adultery in your heart. If you have been angry or harbored bitterness because of someone has done to you, that is a sin. If you have ever dishonored your parents, that is a sin. If you ever desired something that did not belong to you, that is a sin. And you didn't even have to act on it. You just had to think about it. You just had to, to let it let that seed become planted in your heart. All those things are sins, and if you have committed any one of them, you've broken God's law. It's like you have committed them all, and you need to repent. Just one lie breaks God's law. One, one sin makes you a sinner. But we rationalize it away. We have, we have become so adept at rationalizing away our sin and saying, you know what, I'm a good person. I come to church. I give an offering. I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. And we think that's God's standard, but you know what, it's not. God's standard is Jesus. His standard is perfection. And you and I fall so far short of that standard. There is no hope for us apart from what Jesus did for us. 
on the cross. What he did was he made forgiveness possible. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When you repent and are converted, when you turn from your sin, when you change your mind about sin and change your attitude and action and behavior, your sin is blotted out and the word, the image is that of, of ink that is on parchment and something comes and blots that ink up. It's, it's not even there anymore. The parchment is, or the papyrus is white as snow. It's like it was never there. When we confess and repent, and confession just means agreeing with God that what he says about that sin is true. God, I thought that sin was something that would be good for me, but I realize it now, and I confess it agreeing with you that it's not what I need in my life. Please forgive me. I repent of it. I turn away from it and don't ever want to follow that path of sin ever again. And when we do that, our relationship with God becomes possible once more because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matter of fact, Jesus could say it's standing right here in front of you because Jesus ushered in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. And Jesus brought that to earth. And so, if there's a kingdom of heaven standing there, what does a kingdom require? It requires a king, it requires citizens, and it requires laws. Citizens who obey those laws to be in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven... God is our king. We are the citizens of his kingdom. And his laws are his commands, which he, which he says if we obey them, we reveal our love for him. To the extent that we know his commands and keep them, John 14, 21, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we've got to have his commandments. We've got to keep them. And to the extent that we do that, we reflect our love for God. How badly do we want a relationship with our loving Father, our Heavenly Father? His purpose, his purpose for sending Jesus to earth was not, not just to get us back in the Garden of Eden. It was to restore the relationship with him. That is what we were created for. A relationship with God. Sin interrupted that relationship. God removed himself from us because of that sin. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what 1 John 1 9 says. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that that sin is against him, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is washed away confessing our sins, asking him to forgive us and cleanse us, and he will do it by our trust and belief in Jesus' death, his atoning death on the cross. 
So let's make this personal this morning. Let's not just talk about it in the abstract. It's, it's easy to talk about repentance and forgiveness and grace and mercy in the abstract. What, what do you need to repent of today? What do I need to repent of? What do we need forgiveness for? What sin have you harbored in that secret closet of your heart that you think no one knows about? God does. Can you repent of it today and turn away from it and ask God to help you and strengthen you not to keep making the same mistake over and over again? Having his commandments and keeping them show our love for God. So I guess the question becomes, how much do we love him? How much do we trust him? How much do we believe him? That that sin is bad for me. And it will only end in destruction. But a relationship with God will give us abundant life in this world. And eternal life to come. Let's bow together. <clears throat> Father, if we can't think of any sins right now, maybe it's pride that's preventing that from happening. Because we've done such a good job for so long of rationalizing it and explaining it and hiding it. We think we've got everybody fooled. But there's nothing that escapes the penetrating light of your eyes. And we know you know. And so we ask you to bring those things to mind now. And God, we've repented of them before and turned away from them, but they just keep cropping up over and over again. And we have to admit that we can't do it by ourselves anymore. We aren't strong enough. We aren't wise enough. And so pour your spirit within us. And help us, Lord, to turn away, to change our minds and our behavior about those things in our lives that are displeasing to you, that are against your will. And help us in doing so to show you that we love you the most. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.